crossed a bridge to get here today? Hands up. How many of you crossed a bridge to get here? How many of you did not need a bridge to, to get here this morning? Hands up. So, so look around you. Hands up real high those who didn't have to cross a bridge. Now hands up all those who did have to cross a bridge. Think, you would not have seen each other this morning if there were not bridges that had been built for you to cross. You know, I only live minutes away from the church walking, but I wouldn't be here this morning if that bridge didn't exist right out there. Bridges are amazing. So I got a little quiz for you. This is fairly easy. Um, I'm going to show you some pictures of some bridges. Let's see if you can name them. First bridge. What is it? Hey, Confederation Bridge. And if Joanne uh, was here, if she weren't with the kids, she could tell you, she's from PEI, she could tell you how, uh, you know, some of the people living on that island were not happy about that bridge. Do you know that? They don't want the rest of you driving across to see them. I think there were others who wanted it too. Which one is this? Oh, I don't hear it. It's not the Golden Gate. Nope. It's the Mackinac. How many of you have driven across the Mackinac? There it is. Last time I drove across the Mackinac, the winds were so high, they had to put pilot cars in front of the big RVs so they wouldn't blow them off the edge. Yep. Awesome. Next one. Now, which one is that? Okay, it's Vancouver. Not the Lionsgate. Port Man. Do you know that the son-in-law of Doug and Lori, Ryan, worked on that bridge, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, come on, Lori. And I just paid a toll just last week for crossing that thing. It's $5.25. Apparently, it's a cheap bridge. Next one. Anyone recognize that one? It is the Canyon Bridge. Not the one we crossed today, thankfully. But it is uh, from the early 1900s, over 100 years ago. That's uh, one, one of the bridges that spanned the Goat Canyon out here. Yeah, that's right. Awesome. Bridges. They're so significant. Without a bridge, even the simplest connections would be hard. People who could see each other and wave to each other and throw things at each other wouldn't be able to even get to each other. They're essential for commerce. They're essential for trade, travel, education, food, just regular daily life. And in, in wartime, bridges sometimes are, are one of the most significant aspects of the, of, of the geography, right? Our armies try to protect bridges. They try to blow up bridges. They try to build bridges. Um, one of my uncles was, was a, in a paratrooper unit um, as engineers. They would, like, drop in behind enemy lines, and uh, those guys actually weren't trying to blow up bridges. They were trying to build bridges in, in preparation for uh, the advance uh, of the army. Today, I want to talk about bridges, specifically using it as a metaphor, specifically how we can build bridges to enable people who were formerly separated from faith, from Jesus, build bridges so that they have access to the good news about Jesus. In these first few weeks of September, we're trying to step back. I like to do this every September. Step back and kind of ask the question, what are we all about? Who are we as a church? And what's our vision? What's our focus? What are our priorities? And so that's what we've been doing the last few weeks. Um, we're very clear about what our mission is. You already heard me say this at offering time. Our mission is to help people find and follow Jesus. But we acknowledge as a team and as, as leaders, as we prayed and we discerned together, that in order for us to really do that, in order for us to help people find and follow Jesus, we as a community need to be growing in maturity in Christ 
and we need to be increasing in our commitment to his mission to help people find and follow Jesus. This growth and maturity and increasing commitment, we, we acknowledge because if you and I aren't growing in Christ, if we aren't growing in relationship with Jesus, we're not going to help anyone else follow him either, right? And, and if we aren't like, uh, if we aren't increasing in our, in, our, in our commitment to seeing this mission happen, then we're not going to actually go after it. We're not actually do the hard thing. We're not going to actually step over that boundary or speak to that neighbor or make the invitation that we need to make. And so as we wrestle through this in prayer and preparation as a team, we, we start to ask the question, how are we going to do this? Like, how are we going to see growth and maturity really happen? How are we going to see increase in the commitment to the mission happen in us as the Erickson Covenant Church? And we settled on two primary actions that we want everyone to take that we believe are foundational to, the, to, to, to our maturity and to us fulfilling this mission. And these two actions, which is what we've been exploring the last few weeks, two weeks ago we looked at how important it is for us to serve. That being part of the body of Christ means that we serve. That none of us just sort of sit and watch. We are all called to participate. And so we're challenging everyone this year to find in some capacity a way to serve on a ministry team. We've highlighted a number at the back that you can explore, and there's more opportunities there. Last week, we, we looked how important it is for us to also be growing in a community Bible study and how important it is that we let God's word, let the word of Christ dwell in us richly as a community, how essential that is. It's absolutely critical. And so if you missed any of those, I challenge you to go onto our website and catch up to listen to them because they are really going to explain, I think, a lot of our priorities this year and what we, what we do and what we don't do. On this very last Sunday, I want to focus back out on our overall mission and ask, how can we be the kind of church that actually helps people, helps the men and the women and the children from our valley to find and follow Jesus? How can we be that kind of a church? We're going to take our cues from one of the greatest helpers in all of history, a man who enabled many people from different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different experiences to actually find and follow Jesus. I'm talking about the Apostle Paul. You all remember him? He was like super religious in all the nasty senses of that word. He hated Christians. He did his best to stamp out these early followers of Jesus. He was brutal. He was awful. Until Jesus chased him down and stopped him short. And then unbelievably, it was unbelievable to the followers of Jesus then. I think it was a bit unbelievable to Paul, but unbelievably, this Jesus who chased him down and stopped Paul called Paul at that moment into his mission to help people find and follow him. And so Paul did. He gets up off that road. He follows Jesus. And what happens next changes the course of human history. Paul moved from a Jesus hater to a Jesus lover in one single day and went on to be one of the most influential church planters in history. And more than that, God inspired Paul to write a bunch of letters to a whole bunch of these churches, letters which make up a good portion of the New Testament that we can read. And and, and those letters have been critical in helping people follow Jesus ever since. Well, after Paul's big turnaround, he dedicated his life to doing whatever he could to help. And the story we're going to explore today, he arrived at the city of Athens before all the rest of his mission partners could get there. And he was left kind of hanging around with nothing to do. But you don't leave Paul hanging around with nothing to do. Angelie's going to come and read the story for us today. It's on an insert in your bulletins. I invite you to follow along with her. Make sure that's working before you read. Hello. Welcome. 
While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, What's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said, He seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Then they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You are saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription on it, To an unknown god. This god, whom you worship without knowing, is the one I'm telling you about. He is the god who made the world and everything in it, since he is lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in man-made temples, and human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times. But now he commands everyone, everywhere, to repent for their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging, for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in content. But others said, want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them. But some joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysus, a member of the council, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Thanks, Ange. I thought you'd just like a break in hearing me yell at you. Get another voice up here to read. That's awesome. Thanks. Paul on Mars Hill. It's quite a story, isn't it? And what I'd like to do today is tease out five ways that Paul built bridges for faith for the people in this city, and through it, see five things that we need to do, ways that we need to be a bridge-building church for people today. So I hope you can just follow along the insert. I'm going to highlight five things. First, we need to be a church with feet that go. You know, what gets me about this story is that Paul is waiting in Athens. He has no agenda there. You know, Paul has been working hard. He's been traveling lots. And if you know anything about Paul's story, he has lived a rough life. He could have said, oh my goodness, finally some me time. Some R&R. My team's not here. The mission isn't here. We're going on from here somewhere else. Finally, I can take a bit of a break. But he doesn't do that. Paul's there waiting with nothing to do. 
But see, Paul knows down inside he has this message burning about Jesus and what Jesus has done and that Jesus is alive and that Jesus can make a difference in people's lives and he can't just sit around and wait and sip martinis all day. He wants to, he sees the people around him and he realizes he might be waiting, he might be in a gap where nothing's supposed to be happening, but he is a man on a mission. And so he goes into this strange city and he begins to engage with the people wherever they're at. Uh, with the Jewish people and the God-fearing Gentiles on their, on, their, on their Sabbath day, he went into their synagogues, their assembly places, and he began to talk to them and show them how uh, he did what he did in every other place. He showed them how Jesus was the fulfillment of everything that they had hoped for and all through the Old Testament stories. And he, he'd argue with them and he'd show them and, and try to convince them that this Jesus was real and can change their lives. And then the other six days of the week, he's out in the public square and he's talking to you know people running stalls and selling I don't know, what do they sell? Oranges. He's talking to the guy that's selling pepperoni. And he's engaging the people who are walking by. And he's talking to slaves. And he's talking to to, to women and children. And he's talking eventually to philosophers. And he's out there on the other six days. He's just talking. He's just engaging as he's telling people about this Jesus that he knows and loves. I love this. I love it because what it shows me is that there's a bias in Paul. There's a bias in the church toward action toward seeing where we are and recognizing that God has called us there. Even if it isn't the ideal, even if it isn't what we had planned, that our bias is toward action, toward mission. Realizing that we, here in the Crescent Valley, have been sent here for a mission. Sometimes we wonder that, right? Like, why am I here? Maybe I'm in a, in a workspace that I'm, 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 I'm feeling agitated about, or I'm at school and who wants to be there? And, I, and I'm, 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 I'm in a... I'm in a place in my life or where I'm living, I'm feeling like, why am I here, Lord? I want to give you a little bit of a, an object lesson for this. Next time you're feeling like, why am I here? God, what do you have for me? I want you to look down at your feet and say, where are my feet? It's usually a fairly simple answer. They are where they are. They are where I am. Where my feet are is where God has put me. And where my feet are is where God has sent me. And then as God's people, when we've discovered the good news of Jesus, and that's come into our lives and it's begun to transform our lives, we begin to realize that wherever we are, we are God's people on mission. That even in, in those weird you know, limbo zones, in those places where we, we never thought we would be, that God has actually sent us there. That we aren't just waiting, but we're on mission. I think that's so challenging. God has sent us wherever we are. Second, if we're going to build bridges, we've got to be a church with eyes that see. You know, Paul, he did walk around this city and he saw what? He saw many shrines. He saw many idolatrous temples. And apparently the city of Athens and a lot of other uh, cities in that day were just, just chock full of different idols and different temples and different shrines and different altars made to a whole bunch of different gods. In fact, the Athenians were so religious, as Paul pointed out, that they wanted to make sure all their bases were covered because even though they had these hundreds and hundreds of gods, they thought, what if we missed one? Well, Let's build an altar to that one and make sure that we got all our bases covered. Paul sees this. He sees it. He, he looks around. He observes. And he, he's given insight into what is really going on in this city. And the challenge there for me is, I ought to ask, do we actually see 
the places we go? Like, do we have eyes to see and understand what we see? You know, you know how it is when you've got a bunch of clutter in your house that has managed to pile up after a while? You know how you can walk by that clutter day after day after day, and you do not see that clutter? Do you know how? That, you know? Okay, not all of you are like that, I realize. Dale's shaking her head. She is not like that. But some of you, I'm speaking your heart language right now. You know what it's like for clutter to just like, what clutter? I don't see clutter. I don't see anything. I see a perfect house. Until suddenly someone drops by. Or, or you're going to have someone over. Or mom comes in your room. Or whatever. And all of a sudden, wow, things have got to change, right? Because there's a different relationship in the mix. You've been introduced to a different person. Somebody else is pointing things out. And you can suddenly see what you were unable to see before. I'm convinced that we can walk by, as it were, the idols. We can walk by the things that are holding people in bondage. We can walk by the things that people are chasing after and and trying to worship and and, and things that people are doing to try to make sense of their lives and make them feel better about themselves and and, and somehow fix the relationships they're in or make them give them a purpose, whether they're chasing after toys or money or sex or another relationship, another relationship, or whether they're just trying to invest all of their energy into into their family or whatever it is, these things that people are trying to do to, to try to make sense of their lives. We can walk right by that and not see how that is preventing people from coming to know the love and the freedom and the forgiveness of Jesus. And so I think we need to ask, Lord, will you help us see, give us eyes to the church to see our valley, to see our friends, to see uh, family members, kids at school who, who are in class with us, to see the people around us with his eyes. Because once we see with his eyes, we go to our third point, and that is we've got to be a church with hearts that care. When we see through God's eyes, we're going to be able to, you know, what we see with our eyes is actually going to register with our hearts. Paul was deeply troubled by what he saw. There was something inside of him that just broke. When he looked around and he could see it all the different ways these people are trying to find, trying to connect, trying to make sense of their lives, trying to somehow fix the thing that's wrong, trying to overcome the guilt that they carry, the shame that they're under trying to somehow manipulate or manage life so somehow it could get better for me or for my kids or for my future. He can see this, and he's deeply troubled by it. And I have to wonder, and this is connected to our eyes seeing, but I have to wonder if if that's true for us. Like, when we see the way that our friends are chasing after things that we know will not satisfy them, does it deeply trouble us anymore? Or has that kind of become, um, well, it's just the way it is. It's just kind of how life works. People do stupid things, or they chase after money, or they done with one relationship, let's try another. Does it deeply trouble us? Does it, does it hurt us inside as, we, as we're given the eyes to see? Do we have hearts that care, that notice, that realize these things that people chase after, the things that we ourselves sometimes chase after, aren't going to satisfy. They aren't going to bring freedom. They're not going to bring forgiveness. They're not going to bring eternal life. They're not going to change the game for people. Do we see that? Do we care? Fourth, we need minds that know. You know, one of the things that is really astonishing about this story of Paul, when you examine how he engaged, when you examine the speech 
he gave up on the hill, you begin to realize how versed Paul was in the culture of his day. It's actually astonishing. It's an astonishing window into sort of another side of Paul that we, we don't often see. You realize, maybe you do, maybe you don't, maybe you realize that in the, in the speech he gives where he's telling these philosophers about Jesus, do you realize he quotes two of their poets? It's like quoting, you know, Beyonce and, uh, I don't know, Brad Paisley or something. It's like he quotes two of their artists, which is astonishing. It means he read them. It means he memorized them. It means he had gotten and he had engaged in the culture of these people and the, the language of the worldview, the things they listened to, the things they, they read, the, the, the things they thought about. He engaged it not just to know it, but to understand in what ways could this provide an inroad for me to share the gospel. And it's crazy because, you know, those two quotes he uses, one I think is obvious in your, the one, uh, uh, we are his offspring, but the other one is, for in him we live and move and exist, or live, live and move and have our being, some translations say. That's another quote. And, you know, in both those original quotes, you know what God they're talking about? It's not Yahweh. It's Zeus. That's the, we are his offspring. Zeus's offspring. That, that's the original reference. I just want to point that out. In him we live and move and have our being. That's Zeus. So, isn't that interesting? Paul rips one of their lines right out of context. And he says, yeah, he isn't even, it's not Zeus. Rips it out and says, we're talking about God here. I love it. He knows their culture so well. He knows their language. He knows the, the songs they're listening to. The books they're reading. The kind of the authority, you know, so what's an authority in their, in their world? And he uses it to then point people and lead them to Jesus. I think that's a challenge. For some of us, we stay so deeply within a little Christian bubble. We only listen to Christian music. We only watch Christian programming. We only listen to Christian podcasts. And we only read Christian books. And I'm not against any of those things. Please hear me right. But sometimes then, you bump into a friend who could be interested in talking with Jesus. And guess what? You are so out of touch with their reality that you're just Jesus and they have no idea what you're saying. And, 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 and uh, you know, God can still use you, but the challenge is, are we able to engage the, the, the worldview and the culture of our friends enough to be able to help them find Jesus? And the challenge we see in Paul is he does just that. But, you know, it isn't just the culture of his day that he knows. Having minds that know means it's the other half. It's the thing we've already alluded to, that it's knowing the good news about Jesus so deeply. It's about that we've let the word of Christ dwell in us so richly that as we are engaging culture, one of a philosopher, theologians from the last century said, as Christians, we should be reading the Bible, you know, with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. And what he was talking about there wasn't in reference to prophecy or anything, which some people say. But um, it's, it's, about, it's about actually understanding the world and seeing them together. And what we see in Paul here is he knows the good news so well, he's able to take the culture of, of the people that he's ministering to and trying to reach, and he's able to tell them the story of Jesus in language and in, in thought forms that they can actually understand. We need to know the gospel that well. We need to have that embedded within us. We need to know it so well that we're able to, 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 to speak it directly into a conversation in a way that's natural, in a way that fits, 
in a way that makes sense of the person we're speaking to. This is one of the reasons why we are relentless about the fact that we want you reading the Bible, studying Scripture, and particularly studying Scripture together in a community Bible study, whether that's through Alpha or Mark studies this fall. Well, that leads us to our fifth point. We've got to be a church filled with mouths that speak. You know, I love how intentional Paul was. He looks around where he is. He, he, he sees what no one else is seeing. His heart is broken for them. Knowing what he knows, he begins to talk to people in the synagogues. He begins to talk to people who are around him. He, and he begins to, he goes up, even gets an invitation to go up the hill. I love it. From religious insiders to average daily blue collar folk, a lot of them would have been slaves, right up to the intellectual elite. He opens his mouth and he speaks about the good news of Jesus. And that's a challenge for us because, you know, we can have feet that go, eyes that see, hearts that care, and minds that know. But if we don't have mouths that speak, what difference is that going to make? How is that going to shift anyone's life? How is that going to insert anything new into the person's mind or heart? If we only have feet that go, if we only have eyes that see, and only hearts that care, and only minds that know, and you never have a mouth that speaks, we're not going to complete the mission that Jesus has given us. We're not going to be able to help people find and follow Jesus. And I know it's tough. It's tough to have mouths that speak. It's tough to know how to speak. And I recognize that. In fact, it's one of the challenges I've recognized as we think of us as a church. How are we really going to do this? Like, how are we actually going to reach your friends? It's one of the key things I love about Alpha because I think it actually enables you to invite a friend to come with you. And frankly, your mouth only has to be open long enough to give the invitation. And if they'll come, somebody else's mouth in the church will speak. And you'll be able to just talk to them. It's more natural. and You can be part of that conversation. That's amazing. But I also recognize that as you get into conversation with people, I know that lots of you would have had conversations with a friend or neighbor, family member, who, as they heard about church or they heard about Jesus or you said something to them, um, they threw up an obstacle to you. They said, are you kidding? I'm a science guy. I don't need faith. Or maybe, or maybe you're, you just get in a conversation with them and all of a sudden they're like, religion sucks. Religion does way more harm than good. I hate religion. Religion, we shouldn't have religion anymore. And you're like, I, I don't know how to respond to that. Maybe you've got a friend who says, I'm not, I'm not interested in Jesus. All the Christians I know are homophobic. Hate-filled homophobes. Or maybe... Maybe it's just that I really want to have sex with whoever I want to have sex with whenever I want to have sex with them. And I, I don't want any God or Bible or religion limiting that for me. Uh, no thanks. I'm not going to. I don't know what kind of faith obstacles that you might run into. Them and maybe more. And so what I did is I began to think about and connect with others around what are some of those primary faith obstacles that you might run into when you finally do step into that relationship, when you finally do open your mouth to speak and share the good news about Jesus, what are some of those faith obstacles? And so for the month of October and November, I want to pull out some of those obstacles for us. And I want to help us as a church move from a place of feeling defensive when someone says something negative, or when, you know, because i got to tell you, 
Usually when that kind of thing comes up, that kind of obstacle is thrown up, it's, it's not often, it's often done in a way that makes, makes you feel immediately defensive, right? Because you can feel like, oh, they're attacking me, or I've got to defend my faith here, but I don't know what to do, and I'm, you know, and, and you don't know. So here's what I want to do. During the series in October, November, I want to address at least seven of these kinds of obstacles. Some of the ones I just mentioned, some others I, I didn't mention yet. I want to I explore seven of what I see are common obstacles to faith that people have. That if you and I could move from a place of feeling defensive and wanting to fight to a place where we can have a confident conversation where we can invite them to talk more about what they're hearing, talk more about what, they're, what, what they think, and then be able to provide some, yes, answers, but really to further the conversation with them in a way that doesn't get you sweating too bad. I want to do that. I want to do that for you. I want to help you have a better conversation with a friend or family member or schoolmate about some of the very things that might be preventing them from exploring who Jesus is. So we're going to do that through October and November. Now, really, it's a series designed for anyone who, who says, I, I want to help people find and follow Jesus, but I'm a little scared of these obstacles. But it's also, I'm going to do it in such a way that if you've got a friend who has that obstacle, like you've been in conversation with someone, you know they think religion is the bane of human existence, and you think maybe, just maybe, they would come out and listen to yours truly talk about it in a way that I hope would be engaging for them then you can invite them along. And so um, that's what we're going to do for October, November. You can watch for advertising on that. Um, I've even put some stuff up around town. And, uh, and so it is an opportunity to invite a friend to come with you. But, you know, so you know me. I want that. I want people coming. I want people engaging who have hard questions and are, are, are wrestling with this. But I also want you to be more equipped and empowered to have better conversations, more confident, winsome conversations with others as you come to know and understand what people are wrestling with and how we can present them with the good news of Jesus. We want to be a bridge-building church. We as a community with feet that go and eyes that see and hearts that care, minds that know, and mouths that speak. We want to build bridges to people and for people so that we can cross over those bridges so that we can invite them to come and cross back with us on this road of discovering who Jesus is. You know why we do that ultimately? Why we're so concerned with building bridges? Because anyone who's already come to understand what Jesus has done for them, and I know many of you have, but some of you are still exploring that. But for those of us who decided to follow Jesus, we've done it because we've recognized that there was a chasm that we couldn't cross. There was a separation. There was a break in our relationship. There was things wrong that we couldn't fix in our lives. There was a chasm between us and God. We were separated from life and from hope and from forgiveness and from freedom. And there was just no way, no matter what we did, no matter how many idols we created, no matter how many relationships we pursued, no matter how, many, how much we tried to fill our lives with work or with play or with, with this or that, no matter what we did, we couldn't get back to life. God saw us in that place. And he is so loving. The Father sent his one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to make a way across that span, to build that bridge for us to cross, 
across a chasm that had separated us so that you and I could not only receive life, but we could live that life. We could enable others to live that life as well. Jesus built the bridge. In fact, Jesus himself became the bridge by becoming one of us, by living that perfect life that you and I never could live, by dying in our place and taking upon himself our sin and our penalty. He did that so we could gain access to the Father, so that we could come to life. And then Jesus rose again from the dead. And he gave to anyone who was willing to trust their lives with him. Anyone who was willing to believe in him, Jesus gave them the gift of his Holy Spirit. And with that bridge rebuilt, we're able to then be part of God's family. We're able to be partners in God's mission. And that's why we celebrate communion. When we come to the table, we're coming to acknowledge that Jesus is the bridge. That Jesus did whatever it took to win us back. And it took everything. It took his death. It took his resurrection. It took the gift of his Holy Spirit. But now we can come to the table and we can celebrate what Jesus has done and is doing. And that's why it's a celebration. And so today, we're going to participate in communion. And it's an invitation that is open to all who have said, I trust you, Jesus. I want to follow you, Jesus. And if you're not sure where you're at yet, and you want to talk about that, I invite you to come and talk to me about that. But if you're able to say, I I follow Jesus. Not, I'm perfect. Not, I've got it all together. But I trust him with my life. Then you come and you take communion as a way of saying, Thank you, Jesus, for being that bridge for us. Give me your Holy Spirit as I help others find you, the only bridge to life. I'm going to invite those who are serving to join me at the table. I'm going to serve those who are serving as well as our worship team who are going to come and gather as well. We're going to have four stations here today, and those servers are going to stand on the X's that have been provided for them. Well, you don't have to stand there now, but when you get your stuff. And... um. What we're going to invite you to do is just come. We're going to practice intention here right now. Take a bit of the bread and dip it in the juice. The bread is all gluten-free, so you don't have to worry about that. You come up, and then whichever is next available, you come to that station, and then go around the side to go back to your seat. I invite you now to pray as we say thank you to Jesus for what he has done for us. Let's pray. Jesus, you gave us life and a communion at the communion table we hear your words that when you sat at that table with your friends at that last supper you said this is my body when you broke the bread this is my body and you you gave it to us to eat so that we would remember and celebrate your broken body for us and then after after supper you took that cup and you said this is the cup of the new covenant which was sealed in my blood, the blood that was coming on the cross, and to to drink it as a way of saying yes to you. And Jesus, we just come to this table today in humility and in celebration with gratefulness that you did whatever it took so that we could return to life. We take this today in faith and in trust and in hope and ask that you would instill in us your heart your heart for you and your heart for others. In your name we pray. Amen. I'm just going to serve those who are serving today and then
uh, the worship team will return and we will all participate together.